Breonna Taylor's boyfriend is speaking publicly for the first time about what happened the night she was killed. The census deadline is only two days away, even though we should have the rest of the month to fill it out. And Emily in Paris, why are people watching it? Yeah, we're going there. The date, October 14th, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Casey, I just really quick want to check in with you. How was the premiere of The Bachelorette for you? Are you breathing? Was it was it the most dramatic ever so far? Wow. Thank you for checking in on me, true friend. Second, it was as hilarious as I expected the night to be because I ended up going to ABC's like drive-in premiere for it. And I had a plus one and I took my mother, who is in my pod, and <laughs> and I thought she'd like it because she's been begging to get out of the house. Anyways, apparently there was a miscommunication communication <laughs> as uh, I had texted her and I said, do you want to go to this with me? There's going to be good. And I had met food. So then I then corrected and I said food. And she read that as there's going to be good food. Oh no. <laughs> she was expecting hors d'oeuvres to be handed out to us. So oh, uh, no. the, from the disappointment to that, to the minute it starts, she turns to me and she goes, what's this show about? <laughs> <gasps> Oh, wow. Uh, Did she figure it out? Yeah, she ended up having a really fun time just judging everyone. I mean, that's the point of dating reality shows. You judge everyone. (laughs) Okay, time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. Kenneth Walker, the boyfriend of Breonna Taylor, spoke out publicly for the first time about the night she was shot and killed by police officers. In an interview with Gail King that aired on CBS this morning, Walker described the night in detail saying that he and Taylor were laying in bed watching a movie when they heard pounding at the door. He contradicts one key point of officers' accounts of what happened that night. No, nobody was responding. We were saying, who is it? You all did ask, who is it? Several times. Several times, both of us. And there was no response. You know, the police say that they said several times, it's the police. If they knock on the door and say who it was, we can, we can hear them. It's dead silent. I know a million percent sure that nobody identified themselves. Walker said he fired a single warning shot before police returned fire, unloading 25 bullets into the apartment. Those bullets hit Taylor six times. I guess in the, in the middle of all the gunfire, like she screamed. But like I was holding her hand. You like, were holding her hand? Yeah, like while this was happening, I pulled her down to the ground. But you know, she was just scared, so she just didn't get down. So in the middle of all of this, you realize that she's been hit. Was she alive at the time? She, she was still, and when all the gunfire stopped, she was like bleeding and stuff, and I was holding her. You know, then that's when I called my mom. Walker said he only found out Taylor died from injuries after overhearing it on a newscast from his jail cell. Last month, a grand jury in Louisville agreed with the Kentucky Attorney General's decision not to charge any of the officers for directly causing Taylor's death. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Trump administration on cutting the deadline for the 2020 census short by two weeks. So here's how this all goes down normally. Every 10 years, the U.S. conducts a national census to determine the population and location of each resident. This is important because according to the Census Bureau's own website, quote, when you respond to the census, you help your community get its fair share of the more than $675 billion per year in federal funds spent on schools, hospitals, roads, public works, and other vital programs. The original deadline to fill out the census this year for every American was September 30th, but it got moved back to October 31st because, well, 
pandemics make it kind of hard to count everybody in the country. So that seems like a good thing, right? Well, you'd think so, but the Trump administration has been tampering with the census for years now. First, they wanted to include a citizenship question, but that would have potentially undercounted millions of immigrants who wouldn't feel safe filling it out because they'd have to potentially out themselves as undocumented. That was struck down by SCOTUS after the chief justice was like, uh, y'all lied to my face about why you wanted this question. But then the administration argued that the census had to end on September 30th to ensure that they had time to process the data by the end of the year. Lower courts struck down that argument. But the Supreme Court ruled without any real explanation for the order that the census could end counting on October 15th. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a dissent. This has potential to undercount minority populations, and that is extremely problematic. We have to remember that the non-response follow-up period, when people come and knock on your doors, that that is usually how the historically undercounted communities actually get included. That means it's absolutely necessary for communities of color. If they cut off that period, they're not simply ending it early. They are going to then use a statistical tool called imputation to guess the race and needs of those communities. And when they guess, they tend to guess white. They tend to guess that the people who are not being included, that they look like the majority that actually performed. And that means that communities of color get erased, not simply for the census count, but that then means that racial gerrymandering would be permissible because you can't prove that they were gerrymandering communities of color. Even though everyone in the neighborhood knows it, they have no ability to prove it. So if you haven't filled out the census, the clock is ticking. In more judicial news, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down Texas's controversial law that banned, quote, the safest and most common method of second trimester abortions in a 2-1 decision. The law, which never went into effect because it's been tied up in court since 2017, was complicated, so stick with me here. At the start of 15 weeks, doctors were required to stop a fetal heartbeat before performing a dilation and evacuation, a fairly common and safe procedure unless there was a medical emergency. But abortion providers said, hmm, it seems like a ban on that procedure, and sued Texas because it would have imposed an undue burden on women. The Fifth Circuit agreed with that logic, and Judge James Dennis said that the law, quote, forces abortion providers to act contrary to their medical judgment and the best interests of their patient by first stopping the fetus's heart with procedures that are, quote, unfeasible, dangerous, and provide no benefit to the woman. Ken Paxton, Texas Attorney General, is likely to appeal, and there is a pretty good chance that this will head to the Supreme Court. Uh, Hayes, all three of your updates today were absolutely infuriating. Uh, just makes your blood boil. Um, yeah, I mean, don't you just love to see a law that goes against what doctors suggest? Don't, don't you just love that? They're delightful and delicious and just great. They're great all around. And uh, I, for one, am not looking forward to this making its way up to the Supreme Court because there are at least 17 of these cases that are like just waiting, pending to come before the Supreme Court. And uh, with Judge Amy Coney Barrett still testifying today before the Senate Judiciary Committee for the chance to get onto the bench and the odds that a Roe v. Wade case comes before the bench with her on it, it's it's pretty good odds. Pretty good odds. <sighs> yeah, I know, right? So, Casey, what is happening in the entertainment world today? Well, it looks like the long-awaited Mad Max Fury Road prequel is really happening. The cast for Furiosa has finally been announced. After an extensive search, Anya Taylor-Joy landed the title role of Furiosa, taking it over from Charlize Theron. 
the film will largely focus on that character's backstory. And then Chris Hemsworth and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II round out the rest of the cast. Director George Miller said Furiosa was actually written before Fury Road even hit theaters in 2015, but held up production after he sued Warner Brothers over unpaid earnings. It's interesting to note that at one point, Miller considered using de-aging technology to allow Throne to play Furiosa again, but eventually decided against it. Throne described giving up the role as, quote, heartbreaking, but said that she trusts Miller's creative vision completely. I am really excited for this. Like, yeah, it's a shame that Charlize won't be playing Furiosa again, but uh, that is a pretty A-list group of people who are going to be in this film. I love uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. She is so great. Uh, I've heard that she's in more like horror, action-y stuff, but I saw her in Emma. Oh, wow. Yeah, I saw her in (laughs) The Witch, The Bitch. Yes, exactly. I did not see that (gasps) movie, but I know she was in it. it? I will not see it. No, you can't make me. You can't make me. Look, I don't like horror either, and I still think you should watch it. So I'm going to put that out there. Um, But yeah, also, I can't wait to see how Miller almost kills his actors this time. Uh-huh. I want to say, though, I'm in so much support of casting someone else instead of de-aging. Oh my God, I yes. mean, do we want to have an Avengers Civil War on our hands again? We do again? not. Do we, want, do we want to see that? No, no, we do not. <laughs> All right. And moving on, you might remember that Cardi B hurled her shoe at Nicki Minaj during New York Fashion Week back in 2018. But that beef could be squashed and we would all be the benefactors. Rumors are flying that a Cardi and Nicki collaboration is in the works. The song, allegedly called Lavish and potentially produced by Mike Will Made It, was teased by Cardi with a tweet from October 8th that said, quote, since you're mad, I'm going to give you something mad to be about. The collab also had a sample leak on Twitter, and there was even a page on Genius for it before it was removed. The potential collab could honestly shift the dynamic between female rappers and the longstanding narrative that they have to feud with each other. Cardi told Apple Music that, quote, every single time I feel like there's a female artist that's coming up, coming up, coming up, and it's getting the mainstream moment. I always see little slick comments like, oh, they taking over your spot. They taking over this. They taking over that. And it just makes me feel like, damn, why it had to be like that. Why it had to be like that? Indeed. I agree with Cardi there. There's no reason why there can't be multiple people on their way up. And, you know, uh, Megan Thee Stallion, when she's been asked these questions, she's been like, nope, reject. I am not getting into this at all. And uh, I'd love to see more artists like really embracing that. I wonder if this is like a chicken and the egg kind of situation of like, is it the industry that created this um, feud between female rappers or is it media that did it because it gets more clicks? You know, Uh, I I don't know. Or is it actually the listener's fault for being dicks for so long and being like a female MCs and like only promoting one to the top? Like, yeah, is it from radio play back in the day too? And like people could only stand to like hear one. I don't know. Right. No. And it can it can be that thing of like, you know, like you get your fans and they're your fans. They love you. They stand for you. And it's kind of like I'm thinking now about like, okay, if you support a baseball team, it's like, okay, I support this one team and only one team can win. So that's competitions okay but uh, this this isn't baseball <laughs> right it is absolutely not baseball uh, that's a perfectly apt metaphor <laughs> question mark <laughs> all right when we come back we've got buzzfeed shiloh watson talking everything emily in paris stay right there at 
SheFit, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia, Kid Ink, and Asia. This is the professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Open to all teams and players, the NFL's Inspire Change Initiative acknowledges the ways that systemic racism contributes to barriers to opportunity and equality and focuses on ongoing efforts on creating progress in the areas of education, economic advancement, community and police relations, and criminal justice reform. To learn more about the NFL's commitment to ensuring a more equal and just future, text NFLIC to 635-635. It takes all of us to advance social justice. Welcome back. We're about to take a deep dive into a show that everyone is talking about. And uh, let me tell you, they're not all good things. It is Netflix's Emily in Paris. And what's Emily in Paris about? Well, it's about a gal named Emily who moves to Paris. She goes for a job, but obviously finds romance, friendship, and even learns a little about herself along the way. Today, we're joined by BuzzFeed's pop culture editor, Shyla Watson, who has not only watched the show, but has also interviewed its creator, Darren Starr. Good afternoon, Shyla. Hey, how are you guys? Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we get into it, we want to set the scene. Let's listen to a clip from the show. This is where Emily and her friend are dining at a stodgy old French restaurant. Emily is playing the part of the rude American who has just sent her steak back. It's correct. Um, Well, correct for him, but not correct for me. I suggest you try it. Uh, Maybe you suggest you cook it longer? I'll take yours. No, no, no. Come on. The customer is always right. No, here the customer is never right. Well, maybe I'll educate the chef. A little bit about customer service. You think you're going to change the entire French culture by sending back a steak? Now, listeners, as you can tell from that clip, this sounds like a million other shows marketed to teen girls. Shiloh, first things first, uh, did you like the show? Uh, Well, I definitely watched all of it. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) That Um, was a yes or no question. She said no to that. She refused the premise of the question right away. Um, but you know, it was, it was enjoyable. I didn't hate it by any means. So I guess I liked it, you know? (laughs) So what exactly is the show's appeal? Are people hate watching it or are people actually finding comfort in it during our strange times? You know, honestly, I think it's a bit of a combination. I think that it's, it's supposed to be an escape and, you know, you're supposed to watch it and be like, oh my gosh, it's this glamorous life in Paris. And I think in reality, the escape, the escape is that 
everything is so easy for her. <laughs> and it's like, I wish things were that easy for me, you know? Um, so I, I think that that in itself makes it part of a hate watch because you're jealous, but then also, you know, it's, you can, it is an escape. So I think that that's, people just can't stop themselves. So I watched the first two episodes and I had to stop because I was getting secondhand embarrassment because of how Emily was acting. She's very rude. And she's just like a know-it-all in a place where she moved She moved to France and doesn't know how to speak French. Like that. that's where we're at in this. But I definitely found it soothing in an odd way because it felt like it was a, a 2005 show trapped in a 2020 body. Have viewers been feeling that way as well? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, just with her social media, her fashion, um, you know, the way that she, even in the pilot, when she first arrives in Paris, she's on the phone with her boyfriend and she's like, oh my gosh, it's the city of love, the city of lights, you know, basically it's like she's reading an ad for what Paris is supposed <laughs> to be, you know? And it's just, I, I think that, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago, this would be a fresh brand new show but because we've seen so many iterations of it it does feel a little done you know so a, a popular read on emily in paris is that it seems kind of like a show written about millennials by boomers they've created emily to be some kind of social media wonderkind but in reality isn't her feet just kind of basic as hell i mean i feel like i've seen people a lot of people calling out how bad she is at social media oh Absolutely. I mean, this reminds me of 2010 when I was in high school and, you know, still using the Kelvin filters and X-Pro too, you know? I mean, I think that, you know, she is supposed to be this savant and it's not because she's good at social media. It's just because she has social media, which in 2020 is so unrealistic. Even in 2015, that would be unrealistic. You know, I think, you know, she's supposed to be so good at this, but I will say in her defense, even she is surprised. I mean, you know, you think about that influencer event that she got invited to and she's shocked when she gets the invitation and, you know, she is the lowest tier of influencer. You know, she can't even get the swag bag. That's how low tier she is. And, you know, you see her in this event with other people who are on the floor taking photos and with selfie sticks and using all these angles and filters. And she's just trying to take a simple selfie in front of like a floral wall. And I think that part of it is really frustrating because in 2020, being an influencer is a full-time job. Like I can't even do it just for my personal life. You know, it's, it's a lot of work with all the filters and captions and hashtags. And there's specific times you have to post and all of this stuff. And you know, the fact that she can do it so easily of just like, I'm going to snap a pic. But I think, again, in her defense, she's not doing it to become an influencer. She's not trying to get followers. It's just she's never been to Paris and she's excited about it. And she's just taken some pictures and she's doing it at the beginning for her few hundred followers. She's not doing it for the world. Um, so really, that's the blame I'm going to place on everyone else who follows her and less on Emily herself. <laughs> So you talked to the show's creator, Darren Starr. The show's drawn a lot of comparisons to Sex in the City. Was he trying to make that comparison on purpose? I don't think so at all. And, you know, honestly, I'm such a huge Sex in the City fan. I've seen every episode multiple times. And if I'm being really honest, I don't see that many comparisons. One of the things that, you know, Darren said, and, you know, he's great. I was so lucky to talk to him. But he said that he wanted to 
explore through the eyes of someone young for Emily in Paris. And that is not the women of Sex in the City. They're, in, you know, they're in their 30s and 40s. They're established in their careers. They've got their lives figured out minus their love lives. And that's what they're trying to figure out. And, you know, Emily, it's all new to her, the career, you know, the job. She's never been out of the country. She's brand new to Paris, the world. And again, with Sex in the City, it's really about the friendship between the four women. And Emily, she flies solo. I mean, she meets her friend Mindy later on in the series, but even that, that's a brand new friendship. And, you know, she meets Camille um, and Gabrielle, but it's not a close connection to anyone. And, you know, even in the first few episodes, she has such a hard time making friends with people she works with. It's not about the friendship. And so I think that at, at their core, they're completely different shows. All right, so... One, do you think we're going to get a second season? And two, will you watch it? <laughs> Honestly, yes to both. <laughs> I mean, Fair. I, Fair. Mean, I there, think you hesitated, but yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest because it's like, you know, first of all, everyone is talking about this show and whether people love it or hate it, if people are talking about it, it's got to get picked up. And not only that, it ended on a cliffhanger. I don't know if you guys have seen, I won't spoil it, but it does end on a pretty big cliffhanger. And so I've got to know, I just, I've got to know what happens. <laughs> and, you know, I'm really, I'm optimistic. I want to see Emily grow. I think that it's hard because she hasn't faced a lot of consequences. You know, I do think that throughout the show, everything is very easy for her. And so I would love to see season two where she actually has to face some of the music. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to watch. Let's not even pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shyla, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we have time for one more thing. We know that COVID-19 has forced us all into Zoom calls that feel like they last forever. So if you hate it, imagine what it feels like for a seven-year-old. For elementary school kids, most or all of their schooling is taking place remotely. So what happens when the teacher is suddenly disconnected from their virtual classroom, leaving the students unattended? Answer the most relatable content we have seen in a minute. Guys, what happened? She left the meeting. I... I see that there's a little record sign at the top of the screen. So the teacher's recording this. She can watch us and see that we're not behaving. Yeah, I know. And the principal. We would get in big trouble with our parents. Well, but what are you talking Toast means uh, we're in trouble. Mm, I want toast. Um, whoever said we'll be toast, whoever said that, I'll maybe have toast for breakfast tomorrow. That was a second grade class at Parkland Elementary in El Paso, Texas. The video was posted on YouTube by the school's principal. And like any of us, when given the opportunity, the conversation obviously turned to food. It's just human nature. Facts only. Okay, uh, tag yourself, though. Which kid are you or were you in second grade? Oh, was I in second grade? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. In second grade, I was telling everyone to be quiet so we don't get in trouble. But now I want toast. <laughs> yeah, a good piece of toast sounds really good right about now. I completely agree. I, I gotta say, that was so much more civil than I would have expected, considering you remember being a kid. The teacher leaves the room for, like, too long without announcing where she's going. 
chaos. Yes. Or even worse, <laughs> the lights go out unexpectedly. Oh, man. Absolute chaos. Um, my favorite part of this video, um, listeners, if you get the chance to watch it, is that only for like almost every kid, only the top half of their face is visible. Oh, no. Which is hilarious because I like the Venn diagram of seven-year-olds and like your grandparents on Zoom. <laughs> yes. No one knows how to work the camera angle. It's all, that's a lot of complicated thinking right there. It's hard. It's hard. Oh, little babies. Good for them though, for being so like mature in their discussions about like what to do when your teacher's gone props for all of them gold stars for all of them send them ice cream since that's what you would do send them toast oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) all right that's it for today join us tomorrow for a chat with andy slavitt about covid19 policy and his new podcast in the bubble and remember if you promise your mom good food you better dang deliver be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarms so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. Peacock Streaming. The biggest sports and live events on the planet. From Super Bowl 56. What a game this is. To complete coverage of the Winter Olympics. Streaming every event, every day. Yes! It's all the unprecedented. United States wins gold. Unstoppable. Sensational. Unbelievable. Sports to love. Sign up now at PeacockTV.com. The new year is a great time to reset your relationship with your emotions. We all experience things that don't feel so good. Stuff like sadness, anxiety, burnout, and guilt. But in 2022, I want to help you look at these emotions in a new light. I'm Dr. Laurie Santos. In the new season of my podcast, The Happiness Lab, I'll show you that the path to happiness actually involves embracing your negative emotions and listening to the important things they have to say. So listen to The Happiness Lab in the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Gonzalez, the host of SI's new podcast, Sports Illustrated Weekly. Sports Illustrated has delivered some of the best storytelling in sports for 70 years. And now that continues on our show. Each week, we'll dive deep into the best stories from around the sports world. Sports Illustrated Weekly is available every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now.